Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello everyone, Eric Rivenis here. So, a couple of things. First, we have a 4th of July-themed episode today. It's all about those pesky American privateers that preyed upon British merchant ships during the Revolutionary War. Apologies in advance to my British listeners, uh, and uh, for my Canadian audience, you might enjoy the part about Nova Scotia. (laughs) I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Also, we have finally reached episode number 300. And I mean, 300 interviews seems important uh, to mention. It's a nice round number. And after kicking around some ideas, different ways to mark the occasion, I finally decided on a simple acknowledgement. After all, you are here for the interviews, and I don't want to stray too far off course. And I I know I say this a lot, but I want to say it again. Thank you to all of you who stick by me week after week, even when it's not a subject that you might be especially interested in, even when I don't ask the right follow-up question, even when a guest may say something that you disagree with. Thank you for continuing to listen. And I appreciate the messages when an interview has really moved you, entertained you, uh, enlightened you, it's great for me to know because it really does influence future interviews, future topics. Uh, Just giving me and my show a chance. I appreciate it so much. It's been incredibly rewarding. Uh, I sound like I'm giving an Oscar speech here. I've learned so much about history, and I hope you have too, Um, the the dark little moments in history, the tragic moments, remembering victims that might otherwise be lost in time. I've gotten lots of messages from people over the years telling me about how they started reading more after listening to the show, which is so cool. I've gotten messages from people who have binged the, the show from beginning to end, two, three, uh, four times in a row, which is absolutely incredible and so, so complimentary. Uh, I started this podcast back at the end of 2015 for selfish reasons. I was reading these kinds of books long before I ever contemplated doing this. And to tell you the truth, the the main reason I decided to start the podcast was that I thought it would be a really neat way to speak directly with authors whose books I enjoy reading. And to get that chance has been so fulfilling. Uh, Anyway, again, thanks to you and to all of the wonderful authors, experts, historians who have made this show a reality. I hope it all lives long after I do and continues to be a valuable, evergreen resource for any and all who are interested in learning more about the not-so-perfect side of human history. 
And I hope this show continues to reach every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. All right, let's get on with the interview. Happy 300. I'm so pleased to once more have best-selling author Eric J. Dolan with me. He has written 15 books, including two that he has talked about here on Most Notorious, Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates, and Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. His newest award-winning book, is called Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution, the focus of today's chat. It is so great to have you here with me for a third time. Thanks for coming back. It is great to be back. Thanks for inviting me, Eric. Yes. So this book, Rebels at Sea, it seems like a a sequel almost (laughs) (laughs) to uh, Black Flags and Blue Waters, which was about uh, more traditional pirates, right? The, the privateers you write about in this book, that they do have pirate-like characteristics. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the most difficult things about writing uh, for me and I think for many writers is deciding what to write about because you have to uh, get yourself excited. You've got to get your agent excited. You've got to get a publisher excited. And there are a lot of potential topics to pick from. And then trying to find the topics uh, can sometimes prove difficult. And for me, one thing that's often happened is that while I'm working on my current book, another idea pops into mind. And that certainly happened with Black Flags, Blue Waters. In that book, I talk a lot about privateers. I mean, it's mainly a book about pirates. But the thing is, in the late 1600s and the early 1700s in the American colonies, many quote-unquote privateers were actually nothing more than pirates. And just to give a quick example, during uh, King William's War in the end of the 1600s, the American colonies were part of England. And England had a long tradition of sending out privateers as a way to enhance its ability to fight upon the open ocean. Basically, privateers are privately owned and armed vessels that are given government permission to attack enemy ships during times of war. And that permission is in the form of a letter of marque. So during King William's War, England issued, uh, not, not just England, a lot of colonial governors like New York and in Boston issued uh, letters of marque to American ships and American uh, captains And they were supposed to go out and attack French ships because at the time, England was at war with France. But what they, in fact, did is they took their letter of marque on board, and then they promptly went around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, the tip of Africa, into the Indian Ocean, where instead of attacking French ships like they were supposed to, they attacked Mughal shipping, which was shipping between the Indian subcontinent and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And these are very 
treasure-laden, valuable ships. And these pirates that had privateering licenses, but they acted like pirates, they attacked these Mughal ships, took all those riches back to the American colonies, where they were welcomed with open arms by the colonists because they were the sons, brothers, and fathers of the colonists. And they were bringing into the colony not only jewels and silk, but also, most importantly, specie in the form of coins and gold and silver, something they had traditionally been starved of by the English government. So England was really upset with all of these Americans acting as pirates because they were threatening to kill the golden goose, uh, the goose that lays the golden egg, which was the East India Company's trade with the Indian subcontinent. So anyway, England was totally opposed to these privateers come pirates, but the Americans were totally in favor of this form of uh, piratical behavior. But because of that behavior, and also other examples of it throughout history, many people viewed privateers as nothing more than licensed pirates. So in writing Black Flags and Blue Waters, I was reading all about these privateers who were really in uh, everything but name were pirates. And I thought about privateering, which had been around since the 1300s. And I said, well, it can't always have been just a cloaked form of piracy. Are there other examples of where privateers were very active that involved uh, Americans? And then I started reading a little bit about privateering during the American Revolution. And lo and behold, the privateers that operated during the American Revolution were not simply, or they weren't at all licensed pirates. They acted in accord with the longstanding traditions and legal requirements of privateering, which is during an actual war, privateering licenses, letters of mark are issued to basically give you a militia of the sea to expand the strength of your navy to fight against your enemy. And in the case of the American colonies, they had no navy. So by issuing privateering licenses, it gave the Continental Congress a way to gin up rather quickly what amounted to a naval force that went out and attacked British ships, mainly British merchant ships, and brought them back into American colonial ports. And there are many ways that we'll get into in which privateering helped the Americans win the war. And that's what got me excited about it. It was both the contrast between privateering as it occurred in earlier decades in the American colonies, where it was nothing more than piracy, and uh, the contrast to what happened during the American Revolution, where it really was more traditional privateering. And even more important than that, to me at least, was the major takeaway, namely that privateering played a significant role in helping the United States become the United States. And that is a story that I know is not being told in traditional maritime histories or histories of the American Revolution. So I felt it was really important to devote an entire book to this exciting chapter in the American Revolution. Right, yeah. You, you write that there were typically two types of privateers, right? Right. Some were outfitted like warships with the sole intent to capture enemy ships, and then there were merchant vessels too. Yeah. Uh, basically, 
privateers during the American Revolution were, for the most part, merchant vessels, fishing vessels that had been re-outfitted or armed. So even before the war, a merchant vessel and even a fishing vessel would often have arms on board. And they might even have one or two cannons or a swivel gun to protect from something that might happen in the open ocean, such as maybe a pirate or just an enemy ship coming by. So they were lightly armed. But to become good privateers, you had to uh, add armaments. So a lot of these merchant ships would have new gun ports put in, there'd be new cannons placed on board, and there'd be many more individuals. Now, this comes to the distinction between the two types of privateers that you were uh, referring to. There were straight privateers, which might have as many as 100, 130 men on board, armed to the teeth, and their goal was to go out and attack British shipping. And that was their sole goal. They carried no cargo. They did no trading. They were just military vessels, in a sense, that were sent out to prey on British shipping. However, a lot of merchants in the colonies still wanted to participate in whatever form of trade they could, even under the duress of the war taking place. So there were other privateers that they were dual-use privateers, and they would have fewer men on board, maybe like a 70-foot brig or something uh, that's a privateer might have you know, 50 people on board or 40 people on board, and they'd still be heavily armed. But their primary goal was to take cargo to and from ports that would still trade with the upstart Americans. And if in the process of carrying out that trade, they ran across a British merchant ship or even a small British warship that they thought they could take as a prize, they were allowed to do that. So that's why they were sort of dual-use operations. And the reason that straight privateers, the ones that didn't engage in trading, had such large crews has to do with the mechanics of privateering. When you go out and you attack a British ship, and let's say you take a British ship as a prize, the regulations of privateering require you to send that prize back into an American port or sometimes foreign ports where there was an adjudicatory process. Uh, The Admiralty Court, in effect, would decide if it was a legitimate prize. If it was a legitimate prize, the people who brought it in, the owners of the vessel, they would be able to sell the ship and its contents, and 50% of the proceeds from that sale would go to the owners and the investors in the ship, and the other 50% would be split between the men on board the privateer, the captain, first mate, and all the other men on board the privateer. So it was a way of using profit as well as patriotism to encourage men to go out and become privateers. But the problem was, let's say you caught a ship. How do you get it back to port? Especially if you're a privateer that wants to stay at sea and get other prizes. What you did is you selected eight, maybe 10 of the men on board your ship, appointed one of them as the prize master. You put all of them on the captured vessel, and then you manacled or put below the British 
prisoners and you would sail back to your home port while the mother privateer, so to speak, would be allowed to go on and continue preying on British shipping. But you can see what happens here. If you're a successful American privateer and you keep racking up the prizes, each time you get a prize, you need to strip some of your crew. So after a while, you have a very small crew and you can't continue to be a privateer because you're not an effective fighting force if you only have 20 men on board. So this actually caused a problem for a few privateers that got too greedy. And there's a great example of the Eagle out of New London, which was a premier privateering port in the American colonies. The Eagle was doing a great job in and around Long Island Sound and Block Island Sound, capturing British merchant ships. And they kept sending these prize ships with their prize crew back into New London. And it got to the point that there were only 16 men on board the Eagle. But the problem was they had 17 prisoners, British prisoners on board. And a couple of those prisoners got loose. And they rose up, they slaughtered every American on board, except for two cabin boys, and then they took the ship, the Eagle, into the port of Newport, Rhode Island, which at the time was under British control. So you had to walk a fine line if you were a captain of an American privateer between pursuing your goals and being too greedy because sometimes if you were too greedy and you didn't head back to port to replenish your crew, that might be the figurative and literal end of your cruise. This was uh, popular, right? Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, George Washington all supported the use of privateers against the British. Well, absolutely. I mean, the Continental Congress was, uh, was behind the passage of a privateering law in March of 1776 that allowed privateers to come out of any colonies. Massachusetts started off the privateering boom in November of 1775 by passing the first privateering statute that allowed Massachusetts vessels to go forth and become privateers. But yes, uh, the Continental Congress supported it. They realized that in the absence of a strong Continental Navy, we did have a Continental Navy, but for various reasons, it, it, it didn't do a lot of damage and it wasn't that powerful. And in the absence of a strong standing Navy, privateering became our best strategy for projecting some power on the open ocean. And also, coincidentally, a lot of those ships that were brought in had very valuable things on board, not only foodstuffs and liquor and wood and uh, coal and all sorts of things like that, but they also had species, sometimes silver, sometimes gold, as well as the ships. So there were a lot of items that were coming into the colonies at a time when the colonies were under great duress. And in fact, in 1779, one Philadelphian wrote to a the Continental Congress saying, without the privateers and all of the goods that they have brought into the various ports, we couldn't have been sustained during this revolutionary effort. They were critical to us making it through this these very difficult, very difficult years. So everybody, not everybody supported privateers. There were some people that complained that privateers took too many men from the Continental Navy. And that was true. They did take a lot of men from the Continental Navy. But um, 
that doesn't mean that had there been no privateers that the Continental Navy would have been transformed into a fearsome fighting force. There are a lot of reasons why that wouldn't have been the case. Foremost among them is the fact that establishing a Navy from scratch would have been a gargantuan task for a well-functioning, well-funded government. The Continental Congress was anything but. They couldn't even levy taxes. So the Continental Navy, such as it was, came together in fits and and starts. So yes, there was widespread support for privateering, and it became a major enterprise. And when you think about some of the numbers, you realize that there were somewhere on the order of 1,600 to 1,800 vessels, American vessels, that engaged in privateering that had letters of mark. And they brought in somewhere on the order of maybe 1,800 to 2,000 British prizes throughout the war. And as I mentioned, that not only brought valuable things back into the colonies, employed a lot of fishermen and merchantmen who were out of business and allowed them to bring money back to their families, but it also played a starring role in helping encourage France to come into the war on the side of the Americans, which was a major turning point in the war. And it also perhaps uh, psychologically, it gave the Americans some confidence with all these stories of successful privateering actions that we might actually win this quixotic war against the most powerful nation on earth. And I just want to say one last thing uh, sort of related to that that's really important to keep in mind whenever you are reading any book about the American Revolution, and certainly when you're reading this book. And it is that what George Washington said, that winning the American Revolution was a standing miracle, uh, religious connotations aside, perhaps, that is definitely true. But the key thing to understand is that there wasn't one thing or even just a couple of things that conspired to allow us to win the American Revolution. It was numerous things that had to work together and fortunately for us did work together in such a way so that we came out the other end victorious. And privateering was certainly a major part of the so-called jigsaw puzzle that allowed us to win the American Revolution. A lot of people like to say, well, it was George Washington alone. No, Uh, George Washington was very important. Uh, Perhaps another general could have done as well. We don't know. But it wasn't just George Washington. He knew it. It was the movement of troops. It was the fact that France came into the war. It was the fact that privateering uh, was greatly injuring Britain and also providing Americans with things that they really needed during a time of severe stress. So it was a whole bunch of things. And Anybody who reads about the American Revolution who doesn't at the end uh, just scratch their head in amazement that we won that war uh, is not reading closely enough. It was a touch-and-go affair for many of those years. Back after a word from our sponsors. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. 
As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned to the interview. So did the British government issue letters of of mark (laughs) to try and get bag ships that had been taken by americans and if so were they successful at it yes uh what was interesting is at the outset the first couple of years of the war the british decried the americans use of privateering now of course the british were decrying everything about the american revolution these upstart americans were rebelling and that was just unheard of but they specifically didn't like privateers and called them pirates, which is ironic because England is one of the countries that had used privateering for centuries to great effect. And in fact, during the Seven Years' War in the late 1750s and early 1760s, when the American colonies were part of the British Empire, the British used privateering to great effect. And in fact, Hundreds of privateers issued from the American colonies and fought against the French and helped to win the Seven Years' War. So in effect, the Americans who came back during the American Revolution and used privateering so effectively had learned that technique of warfare from the British with whom they were now engaged in an all-out war. So that's a little bit ironic. 
But the British viewed the American privateers as as pirates, but they couldn't treat them as pirates. If they started hanging American privateers and they captured many American privateers, the Americans would start hanging British soldiers that they had captured. And so they decided not to hang them and they just essentially put them into prison indefinitely, hoping that the war would be over soon. But after about two years, the British said, we're holding back one of our strongest cards. Yes, we do have a powerful Navy. And they did. The British, the Royal Navy was very powerful, uh, even though it had been depleted somewhat by its uh, battles during the Seven Year War. But the British said, okay, the Americans are issuing letters of mark. They're sending out privateers to attack our ships. Let's unleash privateering in Britain. And they did. And many hundreds of British privateers went out and attacked uh, American ships. And one of the places from which a large number of privateers came was New York. The New York colony, as your listeners undoubtedly know, right after the beginning of the American Revolution, or soon after it began, New York was under control of the British. And there were a lot of loyalists in New York. And a lot of them had money and ships. And they wanted to fight back against the rebel colonists. And one way they chose to do so was to send out something on the order of 165 privateers during the American Revolution to attack American ships. Now, British privateers were not nearly as effective as American privateers. They may have captured somewhere in the order of 600, maybe 700 American ships, which was significant. But uh, one... uh, newspaper of the time noted how a lot of Ameri- a lot of british privateers were going out simply to recapture their own ships that had been captured by american privateers right. in addition to <laughs> capturing uh, american privateers so yes both sides the british and the americans used privateering the americans used it to greater effect uh but yeah so that, that, i guess that answered the question <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Where were these confrontations primarily taking place? Was it along the coast or farther out? Uh, The the main area of engagement for American privateers was uh, along the coast of the colonies, up around Nova Scotia, and I'll tell you a little story about that in a second, off the western coast of Africa, where, and this is a very interesting part of the story, a lot of American privateers captured British slave ships and brought them back to the colonies where their cargo, the human cargo, as it was called, was sold at slave marts. And the last place where American privateers were very effective and quite numerous was in the Caribbean, where the British had their sugar islands. The number one source of British income at this time, before, during, and after the American Revolution, was in the form of the sugar economy that operated in in the Caribbean. So the Americans decided to strike out against that uh, economic lifeline, and they did a great job. By 1778, the American privateers had captured almost 250 British ships in and around the Caribbean, which had caused British trade to plummet, British trade between the between England and 
the Caribbean to plummet by 66%, which was such a dramatic plunge and sent so many British sugar merchants into bankruptcy that during a debate over in Parliament, uh, one of the lords said, you know, we shouldn't share this information about what's happening to all these British ships in the Caribbean because it'll show the public what we don't want to show them, namely the weakness of the British government and the British war effort at this time. So the American privateers operated off the East Coast. Uh, they also operated around uh, England itself and in the British, in the English Channel and off of France. So it was a bunch of different places where they were were active. And the one thing I wanted to add about Nova Scotia, which I found fascinating, and I have to preface this by saying that almost everything in the book was fascinating to me because I knew almost nothing about the history of privateering during the American Revolution before I launched into this book. So everything was a uh, a huge surprise. But one of the most interesting things is at the outset of the American Revolution, a lot of Americans thought that Nova Scotia would come in as the 14th American colony. And that's because almost 75% of the population of Nova Scotia had come from the American colonies. So there were very strong ties between Nova Scotia and the American colonies. And some Nova Scotians thought they might align themselves with the Americans because they also had their own beefs with Parliament and King George. But what happened is very early on, a number of American privateers who were a little bit too zealous in their uh, activities went north and started attacking not only Nova Scotian fishermen and taking them as prizes, the, the vessels, but also doing something that totally contravened what you're supposed to do as a privateer, they would land in communities in Nova Scotia, like Lunenburg, and they would ransack the locals' houses and operating in effect like pirates. So that really got people in Nova Scotia very upset. And any hope of Nova Scotia joining us as a 14th colony just evaporated. Not only that, Nova Scotia started issuing its own letters of mark and sending out privateers to attack the Americans. So it's just, it's just a fascinating story on so many levels. Wow, yeah. So can you walk through a typical encounter between an American privateer and a British vessel. How would a privateer approach conflict as, as opposed to a traditional pirate outfit? Uh, in both cases, it would be warily. Uh, with, with pirates, for example, they would come upon a vessel and they would try uh, by use of a spyglass or just their naked eye to size up the vessel in front of them. They would look to see what kind of flags they were running up the, the main mast. Uh, not that they were picky about which nationality they would attack, but they liked to know. And, uh, and if they determined that the vessel in front of them was not as powerful as they were, they would come in close and usually with a speaking trumpet or some other manner. They would communicate with the ship. And at this point, they would have raised their 
pirate flag, which in most cases caused the vessels to surrender because they didn't want to fight against the pirates since they had such a bad reputation. And then they would take the vessel or sometimes there would be a fight that would ensue. So with privateering, it was privateers and pirates had the same set of skills. It's sort of like Liam Neeson in those Taken movies where at one point in the movie, he says, you know, I'm a man with a particular set of skills and you don't want to mess with me. Well, if you just strip it down, Pirates and privateers used some of the same set of skills. They had to measure up their potential opposition. They had to hopefully get them to surrender. And if they didn't surrender, they would attack and try to take the ship. So with the privateer, there were some complicating elements because American privateers were only allowed to take British vessels and or vessels of other nations, at least non allied nations who were transporting British goods and materials to the British army or the Royal Navy. So the first thing that an American privateer had to do on the open ocean was try to figure out what nationality and what type of ship they were facing. And they would uh, go in. It was kind of tricky because a lot of ships used Rus de Guerre, where they would have a flag on their mainmast, which is different from the nationality that they actually were. And some American privateers used that technique as well, flying the British Union Jack to get in close and then suddenly change the flag, which you had to do before an engagement. And the element of surprise might get them to take over the other ship. But let's say that an American privateer came up against a British merchant ship. They would be able to know pretty quickly how many cannons it had on board by the number of gun ports and the cannon muzzles pointing out of it. So that would give them one sense. They might also be able to get a sense of how many men were on board the British merchant ship. So if they were roughly comparable in size and they felt that they had an advantage in terms of armaments, they would come in close and they would uh, talk to the vessel. Uh, using a speaking trumpet, and they'd basically say, we're an American privateer, you're a British ship, uh, surrender to us. And in many cases, they would surrender because a lot of British merchant ships were lightly armed and uh, didn't have huge crews. But if the British merchant ship was not uh, interested in surrendering, uh, what happened many times is cannons would start going off. They would shoot back or they'd say no or say, damn you rebels, you know, come at us. And then a fight would ensue. And whoever had the better ship and uh, the greater fighting capability uh, would ultimately win the day. And sometimes they fought to a ruinous draw. There are examples in the book of American privateers and British merchant ships which the latter of which were uh, were heavily armed, and there were many of those as well, getting into a battle where each side limped away, barely able to sail, with maybe a dozen or more men on each ship dead, and their rigging and sails being shattered. But they were in such bad condition that neither of them that the American privateer couldn't take the British merchant ship as a prize. They just had to struggle back into port. But just like pirates, with pirates, most of their prey, most of the ships they uh, encountered surrendered without firing a shot. With American privateers, I think I, I hazard to say we don't have an exact statistic, but most of the American privateers were able to take their British merchant ships without firing a shot. But there were many battles and there were many people on both sides who were killed. So for a crew member serving on one of these privateers, 
Could you talk about what life would have been like aboard these ships and what was the likelihood of, of survival? Yeah. Well, any type of shipboard life during this century was pretty miserable. The one saving grace is the most privateering cruises were maybe two to three months long before uh, either it ended in tragedy or they had to come back into port to get more crew or drop off uh, their their prizes. Uh, so with only two to three months at sea, there wasn't as much time for the food to spoil, <laughs> but it often did. And the food was miserable. The conditions were cramped. There were a lot of people on board and they had to sleep in cramped quarters. If it was during the summer, it was very hot. If it was in the winter, it was very cold. Uh, there was a lot of monotony in the times in between coming upon a potential prize. And then there were that monotony was punctuated by moments of uh, extreme fear and heightened danger when they actually engaged in a battle with a potential prize. So a lot of the time was just spent going to the areas where you thought merchant ships were likely to be, scanning the horizon, looking for a sail, coming in close, perhaps chasing the vessel, trying to get an idea of what kind of vessel it was, then getting in even closer and uh, getting them to surrender or starting an all-out engagement that you hope ended up in victory for you. So it was a, it was a tough life, but the 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 most difficult thing is to understand the economics and the almost psychology of privateering. The truth is many American privateers vessels got captured and well over 10,000 American privateersmen, there may have been on the order of 30 to 40,000 of them throughout the war, but well over 10,000 of them, maybe as many as 20,000 of them would end up dying in prison, British prison ships or British prisons in England. So there could be a number of outcomes on a privateering cruise. One, in the best of all situations, you have a successful cruise where you capture a number of prizes. They're brought into port. They're sold. You make some serious money. Uh, another option is to go out on a cruise and not get a single prize. And that was very disappointing, but you got to come back to port and maybe you could try again on another privateer. Another alternative was to go out and to be captured by a British warship or even a British merchant ship. And in that case, you were headed to prison, which was almost assuredly a death sentence. Yet another alternative, which is one that any vessel of the time would have shared, is sinking in bad weather. I mean, storms came up. They may sail into a hurricane or they may be in an unfamiliar area near the coast and they may run aground uh, on rocks or a reef. So there were a lot of dangers involved in being a privateer, but the whole enterprise was almost like gambling. When you go into a casino, many of you, most people are going to lose ultimately, but some people win real big. And there were enough privateering vessels like the Holker out of Pennsylvania, which captured numerous ships and earned millions of dollars. There were a number of great successes that came throughout the war that people could look to privateering as a viable means to enhance their own personal wealth. 
Yes, they did know about the downsides, but they discounted those and, of course, assumed, as does every gambler walking into a casino, that I'm going to be the winner this time. I'm not going to lose. Unfortunately, many of the privateersmen did lose, and they uh, lost, ultimately, giving their lives. But there was enough success that it kept the enterprise going, and there were letters of mark being issued in the colonies throughout almost the entire course of the American Revolution. So one of the really fascinating figures in American history, largely forgotten now, was a privateer named Jonathan Harridan. Would you tell us about him, his naval career, and later work as a privateer? Sure. Yeah. Jonathan Harridan, he uh, was born in Gloucester, but he he went to work and was raised part of the time in Salem, which is right next to where I am right now, Marblehead, my hometown of Marblehead, Massachusetts. And he was a captain in the Massachusetts State Navy. He he captained a vessel appropriately enough called Tyrannicide that had some success. But after a dispute over pay, he decided to become a privateer and he was given the captaincy of a, a privateer called the Pickering out of Salem. And uh, he had a very successful career with it, capturing many British ships, many British prisoners, and hundreds of British cannons. And I start the book off with uh, what is undoubtedly his most famous battle, which was against the Achilles. Uh, The Pickering was coming into the friendly port of Bilbao, Spain in the summer of 1780, but in the way was the British privateer, the Achilles. The Pickering only had about 38 men on board and 16 cannons. The Achilles had about 135 men on board, and uh, I think it was 43 cannons. So it was hardly a fair fight, but uh, Harridan didn't see it that way. He told his men if they remain calm and steady and don't throw away their fire, they're going to win this battle. And ultimately, uh, they did beat off the Achilles. They didn't capture the Achilles, but they gravely injured the Achilles. And this, this battle was occurred very close to shore. And word spread in Bilbao, Spain, that there was about to be this huge spectacle offshore. And about a thousand people rushed to the beach to watch these two vessels engage. And when after the Achilles uh, sort of limped away, Harridan and the Pickering recaptured the Golden Eagle, which is a British merchant ship they'd earlier captured that the Achilles had briefly taken back. And they went into the port of Bilbao, where, according to contemporary eyewitness accounts, Harridan and his men were fated like heroes. They had, they had, you know, really given it to the, the British right there offshore. And on the way back to Salem, true to form, Harridan and the Pickering captured a few more British merchant ships and sent them into Salem as prizes. And when Harridan returned to Salem, the owners of the Pickering, to honor their intrepid captain who had enriched them financially, gave him a beautiful silver tankard and two silver cups that were engraved with the image of the Pickering and Harridan's initials. And when Harridan died in 1803, he was uh, 59 years old. He died of tuberculosis. The local newspaper, the Salem Gazette, lauded him as one of the most uh, daring and successful men 
of the American Revolution. And indeed he was. And the reason I started the book off with his story is not only because Salem's next to Marblehead and I, I love the history in Salem and it, it was a great story, but there was the, the fact that nobody knows his name, nor do they know the names of many other American privateersmen, nor do they know the real story about privateering during the American Revolution. I just thought this is a great way to show that, yes, they had a big impact. And despite that impact, they have been brushed aside by history. And just to tell a quick, funny story about that, while I was working on the book, I read about a plaque that was in Salem that had been placed there in 1909 by the Sons of the American Revolution, a large metal plaque that was to honor, placed there to honor Pickering, the, honor Harridan and the Pickering's success over the Achilles in that battle in 1780. And it said that this plaque was on the side of a house at this intersection, which is only about three miles or two miles from my house. So it was during COVID. I hopped on my bike and went over to the intersection. I looked around. I could not find the plaque. I found other historic plaques. So I went back home and I called the local historian. And I said, hey, I read about this plaque. Do you know what happened to it? And she started laughing and she said, yeah, it's down the street inside of a Korean barbecue restaurant. (laughs) So I got back on my bike and I went over. And again, it's important to remember, this is right at the height of COVID. I walk into the restaurant. They don't have a single customer because it's COVID. And the woman was so excited to see me. She thought I was going to order some food. And unfortunately, I said, no, I'm not here to order food. I'm here to look at that plaque. And there it was. The plaque was on the inside of the restaurant, right behind where uh, the hostess stands to seat you and nobody knows how it ended up there. But I think that that is emblematic of the way in which privateering in the American revolution has been treated. It sort of has been shunted to the side and not given the place of honor that it deserves. We will return once more after these brief messages. Back again. Thanks for hanging in there. Uh, Another hero of the revolution was a man named John Manley, right? Yeah, John Manley. But he he did act as a privateer, not a very successful one. He's in the book because to give people a portrait of what the American colonists did on the open ocean, you can't just look at privateering. I also have extensive sections on the Continental Navy on state navies and on George Washington's secret navy, which was in existence near the beginning of the war for a little bit more than a year. Without getting explicit permission from the Continental Congress, George Washington ultimately decided to launch a navy uh, manned by men from the Continental Army primarily. And their goal was to go out and hopefully capture British munitions vessels that were bringing arms and ammunition to the British forces that had encircled Boston during the earliest parts of the war. And John Manley was one of the captains that Washington tapped to lead one of these private naval vessels. And his vessel, now I'm totally spacing on the name, I think it was the the Lee, if I remember correctly. That's a problem when you have too many facts in your book. You can't remember all of them. But he, <laughs> he was the captain of a vessel that went out and captured a very heavily loaded 
British munitions vessel and brought it back into Boston Harbor, much to the excitement of George Washington and his generals, because all of a sudden his Continental Army, which was a ragtag assemblage of about 20,000 militiamen that didn't have enough gunpowder to shoot their guns more than nine times, according to contemporary estimates, all of a sudden with this munitions vessel that John Manley brought in They not only had a lot of gunpowder, but they had a lot of balls and other things that they could use to shoot at the British. And there were a couple of other munitions vessels that were brought in by Washington's secret Navy before it disbanded in uh, around the middle of 1776. And Manley, John Manley, uh, was one of the famed captains of that force. And in fact, when he brought in that heavily loaded munitions ship, uh, there were ballads written about him. There were things in the newspapers about John Manley, and they referred to him as a privateer, but he wasn't in fact a privateer. George Washington's vessels did not have letters of mark. They were spun up out of George Washington's mind. And some of his men, like John Glover from Marblehead, who thought that we should be attacking the British not only on land, but also at sea. And funnily enough, when the Continental Congress got wind of what George Washington was doing with his own secret Navy, they said, you know, we should get into this game too. And that's about when they decided in late 1775 to launch the Continental Navy. Interesting. So another figure in your book with a great story is a man named James Fortin. Oh, yeah. Would you tell us about him? Yes. Uh this is this probably comes as no surprise since we're learning more and more about black individuals uh heavy participation in uh, many historical events in the history of our country and many black men fought on the side of the colonists during the American Revolution and many of them also fought with the British but there were quite a few black men and boys who became privateersman, and James Fortin is undoubtedly the most famous. He was a free black teenager at the outset of the American Revolution, and both his mother and father were free in Philadelphia, which was rather unusual. James Fortin also knew how to read and write, and on July 8th of 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was read in Philadelphia, right out in front of the Congressional Hall there, he listened to that reading. And when he heard the words that all men were created equal, he dared to dream that maybe that would be true in this new country that he was fighting for. And then four years later in 1780, Pennsylvania became the first colony to pass an abolition of slavery law. It was a gradual abolition of slavery law, but it was an abolition of slavery law nonetheless. And those two factors, plus other personal considerations, caused James Fortin in 1780, when he was still a teenager, he was about 14 years old, to join the Royal Lewis, an American privateer leaving from Philadelphia. And he was what was called a powder monkey at the time. His job was to bring gunpowder from the magazine to 
one of the cannons so that the cannon could be fired. The first cruise of the Royal Lewis was a great success. They captured seven British prizes, sent them back into Philadelphia. They were sold and earning the men a nice little payday, including James Fortin. So excited was he about the success of the Royal Lewis that he signed up for a second cruise on the same vessel. In hindsight, he shouldn't have been so eager because barely a day out of port, the Royal Lewis was captured by the British warship Amphion, whose captain was John Baisley. Now, Fortin was petrified because he knew that most men of his complexion, in other words, black men who were captured by the British during the American Revolution, would be taken to the Caribbean and sold in the slave marts there. And he thought that was going to be his fate. But fortunately for him, Captain Baisley had a 12-year-old son on board who needed a companion. And he tapped James Fortin to be that companion. So when they rolled into New York four weeks later, Baisley gave James Fortin a choice. He had done such a good job being a companion to his son that he said, you know, Fortin, you can either go back to England with my son, be his ward, you'll be free, well-educated, and you'll have money. Or you can disembark here in New York and go on to the, one of the prison ships, the Jersey prison ship, a notorious ship, and uh, with the other men of the Royal Lewis. What do you decide? And James Fortin was a true patriot, and he decided to disembark with the men of the Royal Lewis, and he spent eight months in prison before being swapped in a prisoner exchange Probably what saved his life, at least the prisoner exchange part, is that Baisley still felt warmly towards Fortin, although he turned down his offer to go to England. And he told the superintendent of prisons in New York, if you ever have an opportunity to exchange prisoners, please consider putting James Fortin at the head of the list. He did me a service on my ship by being a companion to my son. So Fortin was able to go back to Philadelphia. And after the war, he fought and spent the rest of his life fighting to try to ensure that his new country lived up to the ringing words of the Declaration of Independence, that all men should be created equal. He became a very wealthy and well-known sailmaker in Philadelphia. When he died in 1842, he was reportedly worth in excess of $70,000. And one of his friends uh, was William Lloyd Garrison an abolitionist who started a very influential paper called The Liberator in the early 1800s. And one of his initial angel investors, so to speak, was James Fortin. So I just love James Fortin's story. And just to add a little thing, I recently gave a talk at the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. And one of the reasons that I was asked to give that talk is that they, at this moment, uh, when we're speaking sort of in the early summer of uh, 2023, they have a wonderful exhibit there all about James Fortin and other black individuals' participation in the American Revolution. Wow. W what an interesting life he had. Yeah. <laughs> so do you believe that the American Revolution could have been won without the help of privateers? Boy, that's, that's a tough question, not just about privateering, but almost any issue in history, because you can't, I can't go back and do a control. Uh, nobody can tell you 
definitively in most cases what would have happened had something not happened. It's kind of hard. However, I will state with some confidence that I think that if there had been no privateers, that the odds are we would have lost. I I really think that they were that important of an element contributing to our success. But I'll caveat that by saying if there had been no privateers, who knows what else would have changed? Maybe something else would have happened that uh, still would have allowed us to win. But it's sort of like asking me, one, one thing that I think about the American Revolution is that the British should have won. They really should have. And if they hadn't been so arrogant at the outset and they hadn't viewed the Americans as just a rabble in arms and they had thrown the entire weight of their navy and army against this American rebellion right at the outset and pushed their advantages to the extreme, I do believe that the British would have won and and shut down the rebellion in relatively short order. Can I tell you that definitively would have happened? No. Can I tell you that definitively, had there been no privateers, that we might have lost the American Revolution? No. But I can say with confidence that British arrogance and indecision at the outset contributed to us being able to hold on and win. And American privateering also contributed to our success. So if that's considered a mealy mouth answer, well, so be it, because (laughs) I'm not good at predicting the future (laughs) or rewriting the past. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So as the 18th century became the 19th century, did the American government continue to issue letters of mark in the War of 1812 or beyond? Yes. Yeah. I mean, right after the war, Benjamin Franklin, who had been a huge supporter of privateering during the war, tried to get Britain and, and America, the United States, to agree to abolish privateering because he, he suddenly changed his mind and he, he thought that, you know, it, it, it was a bad influence on people. Well, his uh, opinion didn't hold sway and uh, we didn't abolish privateering. And in fact, during the War of 1812, privateering came back uh, in a flood. And there were something on the order of 550 or so American privateers. And they once again played a significant role in our ultimate victory in the strange, though it, it is when you read the history of the, Amer- of the war of 1812, but our ultimate victory in the war of 1812. And uh, what's interesting is in the mid 1850s, after the Crimean war, there was an international conference of maritime powers and all of them, all the major powers agreed to outlaw privateering except for the United States. And that's because the United States still had a relatively small Navy. They had firsthand historical experience during the American Revolution and the War of 1812 of seeing how effective privateering could be if they ever get into a scrape with another country. So they didn't want to eliminate that option. And in fact, uh, way back in the late 1700s in the Constitution, uh, Section 1, Article 8, it allows for the issuance of letters of mark by Congress and the president to allow for privateering. So we didn't sign that treaty, 
in the mid 1800s, 1850s. And it came back to bite the Union during the Civil War to a certain extent, because during the Civil War, what happened? Who issued letters of mark? Who engaged in privateering? The Confederacy. Another thing that I had no knowledge of before working on this book, uh, Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy issued uh, scores of letters of mark. Those Southern privateers didn't have any significant impact on the war. And after about a year and a half, uh, they stopped issuing letters of mark and instead relied on their naval raiders like the Alabama and the Shenandoah. But there was an interesting situation that occurred during the Civil War, and that is when the Union captured the Savannah, which was a Confederate privateer, the men on the Savannah were brought into New York City. They were manacled and they were paraded down Broadway where they were jeered at and things were thrown at them. And Abraham Lincoln threatened to hang the men of the Savannah as pirates. He was forgetting his own history, (laughs) own American history. And uh, Jefferson Davis uh, wrote Abraham Lincoln a letter when he heard of this plan. And he said, dear Abe, well, he didn't say dear Abe, but anyway, he he said, dear Mr. President or whatever, uh, okay, you start hanging our Confederate privateersmen and we'll start hanging your Union soldiers that we've captured. So Abe Lincoln tabled that idea and none of the Confederate privateersmen were hanged. And uh, actually the Union considered briefly issuing their own letters of mark, but they decided against it. So bringing us up to the present day and perhaps towards the end of the interview, we still can issue letters of mark. And I talk about this briefly at the end of the book. There are people that have presented bills in Congress and have called for the reissuance of letters of mark, specifically to send out American privateers to attack pirates uh, along the African coast and maybe in the in the uh, far eastern seas, but they haven't gone anywhere. And my personal opinion, and the one that I briefly talk about in the book, is that we have a very large and effective navy, and I'd much rather rely on our navy should we have to take any military action than to uh, issue letters of mark and have privateers uh, running all over the oceans in uh, acting in our behalf. So we still have it in the Constitution. We still can issue privateering licenses, but I certainly don't think that that's going to be the case any time in the future. Yeah. Was, was this still going on during the uh, Spanish-American War at all? Uh, were, were the Spanish doing this? or No. No, the Spanish-American War was so quick, uh, and we had such a we had a pretty powerful navy by that point. Uh, but no, there was no privateering. Uh, there, there has been no privateering since the Civil War, at least on the part of Americans. There are a lot of other parts of history. One that's really fascinating during the early 1800s, uh, when the southern uh, South American colonies of Spain. Uh, you know, like uh, Brazil, Venezuela, other colonies, Bolivia, had their revolutions. Uh, One of the things they did is they started issuing letters of mark. And believe it or not, a lot of American ship's captains and American owners of vessels took letters of mark from southern countries to attack Spanish shipping in the Caribbean. And oftentimes those 
quote unquote privateers, which were Americans operating on behalf of South American colonies rebelling against Spain, actually went beyond what they were supposed to do and they became out and out pirates. So it's another interesting uh, passage in American history. Wow. So you are always working on a new book, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, oh, yeah. I'm always thinking about it. I just handed in a new book, and I'll. Uh, and as for the next book after that, I don't know. But I just handed in a book that won't come out until 2024, probably the summer. And it's a bit of a departure. It focuses on on a small number of people and a very small number of years, and sort of a, a single interrelated event. It's essentially about five men two Americans and three British men who were intentionally marooned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. And it's a story that involves multiple ships, a shipwreck, some treachery, perseverance, uh, and some natural history. It was fascinating. It was fun to write. And that's the book. That's my next book. What comes after that? Right this moment, I'm working on devising an answer to that and trying to figure out what I want to work on next. If any of your listeners have a great idea, go to my website, uh, which is just my name, Eric J. Dolan, E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com and send me a message and say, here's a great idea for a book because I'm, 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 I'm not proud. I'm willing to look for great ideas anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a paperback version now of of Rebels at Sea. Yeah, it just came out um, earlier this summer. So yeah, you can get a hardcover and a paperback. And what's even better is that unlike most paperbacks, my books have a lot of images in them. Most of my books have somewhere in the order of 80 to sometimes 120 images because I think that images help to tell a story, especially when accompanied by informative captions. And Rebels at Sea is no exception. There are around a hundred images. And in the hardcover, there was a 16 page, was it 16 page or eight page? I can't remember. There was a color insert, which is just, I always love color inserts because you can see these beautiful images in their full uh, glory. And my, my publisher as a, in a surprise move, because they didn't tell me about this in advance when they printed the paperback the insert in the paperback is also color. Usually it's black and white when they get to the paperback. So that's an added bonus that's in the paperback and also the, the hardcover. But I'll add, and, and it's still, it's been nice. I've gotten some recognition for this book. It won the Francis Tavern uh, Museum Book Award for 2023. It was chosen by the Massachusetts Center for the Book as a must-read book for 2023 and is in the running for the Massachusetts Center for the Book Nonfiction Book Award this year. And I just learned the other day that Rebels at Sea is a finalist for the New England Society Book Award. So keep your fingers crossed. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. Ah, congratulations on that. And, And thanks so much for returning to the show and sharing with us some of these historical tales of the high seas. Oh, well, thanks to you, Eric. I really appreciate being invited back. Again, I have been speaking to Eric J. Dolan. His book is called Rebels at Sea, Privateering and the American Revolution. This has been another episode, episode 300 of the Most Notorious Podcast. 
so excited to have reached this milestone. Once more broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Have a safe tomorrow.